Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The Definitive Rap is a proud is proud to be the official podcast of vinnews.com. I wanted to open our show today with a brief tribute to Rush Limbaugh, who passed away yesterday at the age of 70 after a years-long battle with lung cancer. Rush was a pioneer who revitalized AM radio and conservative talk radio. His show spanned three decades and was America's number one talk show for over 30 years. He was a true patriot who loved America, really believed in American exceptionalism, and was a true friend and staunch supporter of the state of Israel. Now for today's news. Last week, Americans watched as Democrats attempted to impeach President Trump for a second time. They falsely accused him of inciting an insurrection against the government. For an entire week, one Democrat after another engaged in what can only be described as political theater. For four years, we watched the Democrats, the media, and their activist base compare the president his family, his advisors, and supporters of being Nazis and Nazi sympathizers. For four years, we watched the incitement against Americans who voted for President Trump. For four years, we watched the threatening, harassing, and beating up of anyone wearing a red cap. This past summer, we watched their activist base in Antifa and BLM riot and loot businesses across our big cities, but now they have the gall to accuse a president of incitement. Today, we are honored to have attorney David Schoen, who together with his colleagues refuted the false case presented by the Democrats. And in a few moments, Bela will give our guest a proper introduction after her introductory comments. Bela. Thank you, Alan. Justice, justice shall you pursue, as the good books tell us, depicts the topic on our show today. Some people love former President Trump and some people hate him. And there is no doubt that even lawyers who love him may likely, in the interest of the political climate, chosen not to defend him. Not only that, but while Trump fans probably thought it was a huge sanctification of justice that an Orthodox Jew defended him, his enemies probably thought it was a huge desecration that an Orthodox Jew defended him. And yet the phrase, Justice, justice shall you pursue is precisely what our esteemed guest David Schoen, a solo practitioner with over 30 years of practice, set out to do, and he did so with successful expertise. David has extensive, complex litigation experience as lead counsel in trial and appellate courts throughout the country. David served for a year as a law clerk to the Honorable Truman M. Hobbs, Chief Judge of the United States District Court for the Middle District of Alabama, who had been Alabama's preeminent trial lawyer for a generation prior to taking the bench. In 1995, David was honored 
by the American Bar Association with its National Pro Bono Public Award, in 2015, David was honored by Boston College Law School with its honorable David S. Nelson Public Interest Award, named for federal, for great federal judge and humanitarian. He has been honored by a leading Israeli institution for the welfare of children with its Migdal or Tower of Light Award. David Schoen graduated Columbia University Law School with a Master of Laws and from Boston College Law School, J.D. Cum laude. David, welcome to our show. We have so many questions in our limited time together today. But would you say this trial was unique in that it felt like a personal destruction of former President Trump rather than actually seeking the truth for justice? There's no question whatsoever about that. You're right on with that. Um, it was also unique. First of all, I hesitate to call it a trial. It is called an impeachment trial, but it bore no resemblance to any kind of trial or other legal proceeding that any American should or would expect to see. And by that, I mean no due process, no rules of evidence, nothing like that. It was just a kangaroo court, but they didn't really even treat it as a trial. They told a story. They hired The Democrats hired a movie company and a large law firm, and they put together a story, a package that they then sold, and they decided how to edit and where to edit and what part of the story to tell to fit their narrative. That's something uh, very different from what the American people deserve uh, when something this important is at stake. Understand, their goal here was to bar President Trump from ever running for office again, and in effect, disenfranchising the 74-plus million voters who cast their vote for him so that they could never do that again. David, let me ask you a question just to kind of go back to how this whole thing started. You are a prominent attorney, um, but were you in your office one day and the phone rang and they said, hi, this is the White House. Uh, we need you to come down to Washington right away. Uh, how did they introduce you to your colleagues? Um, when it came to the videos that you all presented, the, the true unedited videos, was that your strategy to find videos or did, did the RNC call you and say, we have this, you need to look at it? How did that whole defense start and how did you become involved from the, from the get-go? A lot of good questions. Um, actually, it was a Sunday night. I just finished dinner and I got a call from an aide to the president asking me, introducing himself and asking me whether I would consider representing the president in the impeachment proceedings. I was flattered, honored, et cetera. And I said, of course, I would consider it. It would depend a bit on who was on the team, um, I thought, because that would kind of make the focus, uh, determine the focus. Um, and so we had a long talk and the person said that he would call me the next day with the president. But about two hours later, the president himself actually called and asked me again if I would consider it. And we had a very nice long talk. Um, I'll say this from that phone call and every other experience I've had with President Trump, he has been as gracious as anyone could be. He made me feel like um, it, it's an honor to speak to me rather than the other way around, the president of the United States calling. So um, he asked again if I would consider it. And I, I said I would consider it. And then uh, he called back, the president called back the next day. We talked again for a while. It's a big undertaking for me. I am a solo practitioner in Montgomery, Alabama, civil rights lawyer, criminal defense lawyer. I have a heavy caseload already. Um, this was a big undertaking and I, had to, I hesitated. Later in the week, I saw a news piece that this fellow Butch Bowers from South Carolina had been named to represent the president. And so I thought that was it. They'd made their decision. I emailed back to say, thanks very much for considering me. This looks like a good choice. But instead, they said, actually, that's just one person. We'd like you to quarterback, the, join them and quarterback the group. I said, you know, be co-quarterbacks, let's say. 
I said I would not I wouldn't imagine that they would accept that they had five lawyers they're all very fine professional lawyers long experience and uh, they didn't need me I felt and the president you know wanted me to have a speaking leading speaking role but they intervened they called down to Butch and he was as gracious again as could be and they accepted me right away and we started meeting together and so on that didn't work out for whatever reason and uh, not for the reason by the way I've seen in the media that the president was forcing some election fraud agenda on them that wasn't it at all it just wasn't, let's say, the right fit. Um, so the president asked me after that whether I would just take the case myself. And again, I said, that's impossible. It's far too big a case for me. I would need other resources. I've never done an impeachment before. And I want to do a good job in whatever I try to do. So I said I would need someone to be hired to help me. The um, fellow they ended up hiring, Bruce Castor, has a cousin who is an attorney in, at the, in the house. And he recommended him. So they ended up hiring Bruce Castor and his law firm. And, uh, you know, we went from there. You asked a couple other questions in there that were very good, but now I've forgotten kind of. Okay, so, so you get there and uh, the videos is a perfect example. Oh. We know that, that they did. They had all, a movie company, as you said, just take everything and make it into uh, the way they wanted it to. Okay. Uh, how did you get the videos? Was it your idea or someone's idea saying, you know what? Um, let's call the RNC. Let's call Fox News, whoever has it, uh, to prepare as a rebuttal, the real evidence. Was that the initial strategy or did it come to you later when you knew that the Democrats were going to use a, a, a video collage? Got it. Okay. So uh, at this point, once, you know, got into the case, now it's only about, you know, a week away from trial, had to really scramble. And I was dealing with an assistant to the president, not the president at, at that point in time. And Bruce Castor came in, brought a whole firm in, uh, you know, he knows how to run a firm and how to run a group. I generally only do a team defense if I make up the team myself. We didn't know each other. So it seemed to make much more sense for him to organize the team and the roles and that sort of thing. So one of the things I said early on is, though, I learned this, um, quite frankly, from Sean Hannity, uh, the power of video. And so I made a list of subjects that I wanted to see whether there were videos for. There's a brilliant fellow, Dan Scavino. Who I've never actually met, but I know he was working hard on this. And another guy, Uri Renat, works, works with them. Um, so I, I contacted another assistant of the president. And I said, uh, I'd like to see what videos there are on the following subjects. And I listed about five or six subjects. They sent me back an unbelievable package, just a list, maybe 50 or 100 in each category. And so I went through those. And then ultimately what happened is, um, and they were terrific. Ultimately, just I'll cut to the chase how it played out. Um, you know, this, the uh, issue that I couldn't appear on, the, on Shabbos. So... Um, it, it now it developed that we thought originally the case would continue till Tuesday night. As the, as I got to DC, now the president got more involved. We began speaking with him directly two, three times a day and his assistant, no one had apprised him of the idea that I was only going to speak the first day on jurisdiction. And then the rest with the other fellow who had a whole firm, very good lawyers would take over. Um, that was fine with me, but the president wanted me to speak more. So I couldn't give the closing argument because that was going to come out on Shabbos. And, uh, so he, he said he wanted me to speak. I came up with the idea that maybe the most hard-hitting thing could be come up with a video presentation, video-based presentation. I called it a video opening and try to hit on as many subjects as I could and try to knock it out of the park with that for a couple of reasons. One, you know, the Republican senators had, been fel fel had felt like they'd really been put down all week, their party and them. I wanted to stand up for them and hit back a little bit um, and expose this hypocrisy and the double standard. So again, I made up a list and an outline of what I wanted now that had narrowed down, what subjects I wanted to cover 
in this 30 minute presentation. I didn't want to go longer than that. I wanted to hold their attention, be sort of hard hitting. And so again, they're brilliant uh, staff videos, put together the videos. They put together some cue lines. Um, this only developed, you know, this is a Thursday night. I worked through the night. It wasn't clear that they were going to be able to have it ready. Friday morning, uh, the president called and said, how's it going and so on. I wasn't sure it could possibly be ready to do the kind of job I wanted to do and the kind of job I wanted to reflect the president's position. But by nine o'clock, I met with them, the video folks and all that, saw their cue lines. I loved what they had done. I went back to my room at the hotel. I had typed up through the night kind of my script, if they were able to get these videos. I typed up, plugged in my script, and we left at about 11.15 for me to go on at about 12, 20, 12, 30. I had never gotten to do a full run through with the script and all of that, but it worked out okay. They're, they're just, they were so professional, the video folks, they hit the cues right on, and all of these things just really worked well. And I think it did expose the double standard and the manipulations and all those sorts of things that should never attend something imp as important as an impeachment proceeding. David, yeah. it was fascinating to watch your brilliant tactics and how you proved that the videos were doctored and that, in fact, Trump did not call for violence on that day. My question is, did they not think that their misrepresentation of the facts and events was not going to come out? Can you tell us uh, a bit about that? Please? I don't think they cared. For, I don't think they cared. Just like, you know, we see stories in some of the mainstream media times that we know aren't true. But again, you know, they put them out there. They have a tremendous audience and people believe it in some cases because they want to believe it. And so here they told this story. But to me, what was so um, what was missing from the start was this disconnect. They acknowledged from the start that we don't have all of the facts. They acknowledged from the start that this case is fact intensive. For you to come to conclusion, you need to understand what all of the facts are. How could they possibly have gone forward with this thing when you know that we don't have the facts? Why, as an American, would you ask a group of senators or folks on the street to find a president of the United States guilty and to bar him from office forever when you don't even have the facts? Come on, that's so as un-American as it comes. So, you know, what I want to ask you also, uh, when we're watching on TV, we can see you, we can see whoever is making the case, but we can't see the senators or the, the people in the background. When you're speaking and you're blowing them out of the water, uh, you're looking at them. What is their reaction? Do you see them going, oh, my God, he caught us? Or are they like just sipping their water until it's their turn again? What is the environment like behind what we don't see on TV? Great question. Um, you know, they all were watching, you know, that's the one power of video is everybody gets glued to it. It really, so they all were watching the video intently. Um, as I started, when we played the video, that was the long one, 10 minutes, with Senator Warren, a lot of primary role in the beginning. The goal there was to, this was not my idea. This was, uh, I knew I wanted to do the fight, 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 but this was the videographer found this to have every single member of the Democratic Party in the Senate saying that kind of rhetoric that they had said was so dangerous and every one of the House managers. That was powerful. They resented that. They, they, I could hear them talking and moaning and groaning, that sort of thing. What I thought was one of the best lines that we found, and I wanted to find this line because I remembered it, but one of my sons actually found the uh, text and video for me. One of the House managers, this fellow Castro, said, can you imagine, with this righteous indignation, yeah. can you imagine that anyone would ever claim, any politician on any level, that the only way he could have lost an election is if it was stolen? How dare they? That sort of thing. Well, I knew that Sherrod Brown at a DNC event had said exactly that about Stacey Abrams. So that's the piece I picked. Right. I did edit that. I moved that to the front of the package. 
I wanted that to play Castro and then that juxtaposing. And, you know, I mean, I felt a little bit bad because Senator Brown was sitting right there. But, you know, you have to do it, I think. And so I played it. And he said exactly that. The only way Stacey Abrams, Abrams could have lost this election is if it were stolen. So all of this stuff that they told the Republican senators and the American people is so horrific that anyone should ever say to question an election. Um, you know, they've said it. I, I wanted to get in there. Just couldn't find the video in time. I wanted to get in there a video that reflected or the graphic that reflected the letter that Senators Wyden, Klobuchar, Warren and others wrote uh, earlier on, say, questioning the integrity of Dominion voting machines. I love that. I wanted to show that maybe this is how other people got the idea, because they had real questions about the integrity. But we couldn't put together the graphic in time. Right. So who actually recommended you to Trump? Have you uh, represented him before? How did he know about you? And most importantly, why do you think he chose you to defend him? Uh, well, I, I, a couple of people have told me they recommended him, but they're sort of prominent people. and They didn't tell me I could use their name. But I do know that, among others, maybe Roger Stone recommended me. I had represented him briefly on appeal. He, he had tried to hire me for his trial, but it was just before the trial. And the lawyers didn't want to move for continuance. So I represented him on the appeal, but then his sentence was commuted at that point. Ultimately, he was pardoned, as he should have been. Um, but uh, as to uh, why the president hired me, probably felt sorry for me. I don't know. Oh, why. No, I'm sure <laughs> not. No, it was for know. sure your expertise. Everybody makes a mistake, you know? No, not at all. Not at all. You were so successful. Yeah. Sometimes I had, again, I have so many more questions for you. Um, as I was watching Fox News, for example, and they had some conservative guests, they, they wondered why the Democrats went for the charge of insurrection, which was easily refuted, and didn't go for the charge of dereliction of duty, because apparently, I wasn't there, but there were reports that the president was called while it was happening, saying, you know, come and help us do something, and he wasn't. I don't know what happened up, but the Democrats didn't go after that charge. Can you speak to that? Yeah, they tried to make a case for that, by the way. I mean, and that seems to be what, you know, convinced a couple of the senators, the idea that the president didn't respond quickly enough. I don't think they could have it both ways. You know, they, he caused it. Um, he's responsible for them, but he didn't act quickly enough at the end. They had to come up with a theory. Insurrection was absolutely absurd, but it was the most dramatic for them to make. Listen, they overreached on everything just about their position. Get this. Their position was not just the radical position that you can use impeachment, uh, what's called a late impeachment, impeachment to go after a, a president who's no longer in office. They could have taken the position that, listen, he was impeached while he was in office. The House impeached him while he was in office and it was for conduct in office. So the fact that the trials afterwards is secondary, I still think that position is not supportable. They took the position. It doesn't matter when he was impeached. They say any person who has ever served as a civil officer in the government can be impeached at any time in perpetuity for any conduct that occurred in the office. And so that means if you were to say if one day there was to be some kind of, you know, horrible government in place in Congress that said, you know what, Abe Lincoln had it wrong. Slavery was a good thing. We should impeach Abe Lincoln for all that he did to our country. They could do it based on this theory. And the proof of it is they kept using this Belknap case to say, oh, you see, we've done this before. Belknap was out of office when they impeached him. He had resigned. So, But they say it flatly on page 65 of their brief. They say it. That's a radical position that's unbelievably dangerous. David, you made headlines when you asked if the president's trial could be suspended on Shabbos. 
Taking off as Shabbos was likely not unfamiliar to Trump since one of his main lawyers when he was a private businessman was Jason Greenblatt, who is an Orthodox Jew. Your observance became a hot topic again a few days later when you covered your head with your hands several times as you took sips of water while speaking on the Senate floor. You may not realize what a beloved figure and role model you have become. Can you share a bit about your background? Um, yeah, you know, it, the irony of that is for me, my religion is a very personal thing. And so I always kind of weigh whether to wear the yarmulke, not wear the yarmulke, depending on the setting. I've kind of come to a conclusion that I wear it for a court appearance just in front of the judge. I don't wear it in front of a jury because many jurors have certain stereotypes that can inure to the client's detriment. And so I'm careful about that. Here, I made the decision not to wear it in the Senate. I forgot a couple of days and I had it on still. I had to take it off after I got in the, uh, in the room. But um, that was just a decision I made. As for the Shabbos thing, um, again, you know, I said before, the president was gracious with me in every conversation we had. He was supportive of whatever I decided in this case, on the yarmulke, whatever I decided, on Shabbos, whatever I decided. Um, so ultimately, I, I mean, initially I wrote that letter and I felt awkward about writing it because even at the time, I thought about the inconvenience I would cause for so many people. Um, and I was wrestling with the idea. I personally thought maybe it'd be better that I just not be there on Shabbos so that they can go forward. I started to get a little bit of feedback from some of the senators. I knew that the senators wanted to move this case along. And I, then it really hit me that I am inconveniencing a lot of people. They had a recess coming up. They wanted to get through this impeachment. The impeachment is bad for the country, in my view. And I made that point. And so I wrote a letter withdrawing it. And in either event, the president supported me, you know, completely. Um, so that's kind of how that came about. You know, I want to ask you also, um, I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. But I watch a lot of L.A. law. I'm sorry, law and order. And my best friends are, are lawyers. Um, I know that a lawyer is not allowed to present uh, false evidence in court under, you know, uh, they, they could be disbarred for it. Uh, in these hearings, are these house managers ever subject to the same rules as a court of law? And were any of them ever afraid that it could come back and hurt them? Could they be disbarred further because of their actions of misrepresentation in court? Um, I don't think Maxine Waters is a lawyer, but certainly the videos came out of her calling for violence against um, Trump supporters. Are any of them subject based on what they've opened the Pandora's box? Is there any way of going back and, uh, charging them with something based on their past actions, whether it was calling for uh, violence against Trump supporters or they're having uh, presented false uh, evidence or tampered evidence. Well, right. I think that um, on the first question, if you know, when you watch those videos, their calls for violence or what I say, supporting violence, endorsing violence, justifying the violence, any of those things were much more emphatic than anything anyone could construe that President Trump said. And in fact, he used the word peacefully. They didn't. Um, sure. And that's part of the danger of this impeachment process, by the way. You know, the senators are not subject to impeachment. But but for other officers, um, yeah, if we had a different Congress, Republican majority Congress, they could be impeached. I'm not in favor of that. Um, I do believe in passionate, robust speech. I'm not the advocacy of violence, certainly, not the endorsement of violence. But um you know, part of the reason for playing the video after I played it, by the way, after the rhetoric was there, and I said, you all use that word, but that's okay. It's a word we use, but just stop the hypocrisy. I'm in almost an absolutist on the First Amendment, so I believe they should be able to, you know, rile up their constituency and all of that. Um, I remember I used to, 
travel around the South and particularly Alabama uh, for a civil rights incident that had happened. And I would speak to the crowd and I had certain speeches I would give. And I remember one time the chief of police's deputy uh, stopped me after a speech and he said, you sound like a young George Wallace, the way you're getting this crowd riled up. I took it as an insult in a sense at the time, because, but he didn't mean the racist part of it. Uh, he just meant, you know, the advocacy and all of that. I believe in passionate advocacy. Um, I don't think, you know, er, the whole thing was so uh, without rules that I don't think anything they did could be said to cross the rules in the um, Senate. But I think that it crossed any semblance of the right to fairness. I think that Americans expect fairness in the process. And whether that it's mandated, whether due process is mandated or not in the Senate and the House impeachment processes, we should expect it. We should demand it. Uh, your, David, your admirers really want to know about your personal background. Where were you born? How did you get into law? Do you live in an Orthodox community? Who is David Schoen outside of this great legend? Now they're really stretching because it's very <laughs> uninteresting. But uh, I'm sure it's was, very interesting and we want to know. I was born in Freeport, New York. And uh, uh, my family lived in New York till I was four. My father died when I was four. Uh, my mother remarried. My stepfather was killed when I was 10. So my mother raised me as a single parent, uh, worked 16 to 18 hours a day. I won't go into this subject too much because in December, uh, almost my whole family got hit very hard with COVID and my mom uh, passed away from it. She was living next door to me, about five oh, steps away. I'm so sorry. And, uh, yeah, we had breakfast every day together. We exercised together every afternoon. She was our best friend in the world and oh. uh, most amazing person in the world and, and my advisor. So I sorely miss her now, and it's been about six weeks. Um, but anyway, I grew up in Virginia, just outside D.C., McLean, Virginia. No formal religious background uh, ever. A generation ago, um, my great-grandfather was uh, president and one of the founders of Torah Vidas in Brooklyn, that sort of thing. But we were more assimilated as the generation went on. And then as I got older, I got more interested in religion. So I, in Alabama, I became friendly with a conservative rabbi, uh, took me under his wing. And then I had a bar mitzvah in Israel, but it wasn't something I really prepared for. But then um, I moved to New York to work on a case. And I moved next to, uh, turned out to be, as far as I knew, I'd never met an Orthodox Jew in my life. So I moved into this building. It was sort of a dormitory for the shul next door called Oab Tzedek. And I uh, just met a wonderful group of people. I went to this program called Turn Friday Night into Shabbos. And um, they ended up making us a poster child for it. They had a picture of my first son. And they said, if it weren't for Turn Friday Night into Shabbos, there wouldn't be in my son's name. Um, and so I met this rabbi, Brian Thaw, and then Alan Schwartz at Oeb Tzedek. Uh, and they took me under their wing. And I really loved the place. So then it took on Shabbos and Kashrus and all of that sort of thing. And uh, ended up marrying someone who's the opposite background, father, an Orthodox rabbi, grandfather, an Orthodox rabbi. And thank God we have the most wonderful family. The last thing I want to say about that is one of the most important things about this process to me is it became a family project. My kids and family are all across the spectrum politically, but we saw this as a constitutional inquiry. And so we all sat down every day for the week that I was in this case uh, before the trial started. And we started looking at sources, constitutional sources, First Amendment sources, due process. And we started putting together materials. And so that, for example, um, I caught them in a very bad misstatement in their brief. They said in their brief they were likening President Trump to the thuggery that the founding fathers knew to prevent and be wary of and all that. One of my sons, a history major, and he says, wait a minute, they're citing to the historian Bernard Balin. That can't be what he said. So he pulled the book. What they were talking about in the book that they stole the quote from 
was democracy. The founding fathers, the early colonists rather, were afraid of democracy. We know, we embrace democracy, we love it. The early colonists were referring to democracy as this thuggery. And so I said, the house managers are talking about democracy and all that. So that was a great find. Then a daughter, I, I, I wanted to focus on the Lincoln period because I thought that's the other most divisive period in our history. So I asked the kids to come up with a poem from a poet Lincoln loved and a speech that Lincoln made that would be short, but to the point. And so they came up with a daughter, came up with that. And we all discussed all of the issues. And then when I finished my presentation, in the preparation stage, we went over it and they modified it. And they told me, I think you're hitting too hard here, or too soft there. It was very important to me that this became a family process. You know, David, I had a few more questions I have to ask you. Um, we all know the Lincoln Project the disgraced, disgraceful Lincoln Project, that they were um, targeting lawyers who uh, would agree to represent Donald Trump. Did they contact you, threaten you, uh, try to get you off the case? Never, but it looks now like they were too busy with their other sort of nefarious activities to bother with me. No, I, I never heard from them, but it's just unbelievable that there are these groups out there motivated simply by a hatred. Yeah, by petty hatred. Um, you know, I want to ask you right before Shabbos, and uh, um, I don't know if you were still there, but there was a congresswoman on the Democrat side. I don't remember her name, but she was, I think, the only black uh, female congresswoman there. And sure as I knew it, she pulled the race card on you guys. Yeah. Uh, never mind that it wasn't true. The videos you showed had Elizabeth Warren, had Nancy Pelosi. Never mind that. But she pulled that cheesy gutter race card. Um, what was the reaction on your side when she pulled that? I wasn't there. I'd left for Shabbos, but I heard about this afterwards. I was disappointed that she did that. It was a cheap shot. Um, and I had an answer for it. I wish I had been there for the question and answer period, because the obvious answer is this, and this is my work. There were a number of people of color in the video because people of color historically have been the victims of voter suppression. And so they're particularly sensitive to it. And many people of color, whether the claim they made this time around was true or not, raised those kinds of claims. And so we depicted them in the video, not because necessarily their claims had no merit at the time, but because they raised claims challenging the integrity of the election, um, and maybe appropriately so, uh, so that to show that there's nothing inherently bad with challenging an election. I represented the Alabama voter in the Shelby County Voting Rights Act case. I've done ballot access cases, voting rights cases, you know, throughout my career. I'm sensitive to these issues, but for her to then raise the race card there shouldn't have X number of people of color depicted in the video challenging elections is absurd, or she just doesn't know the history. David, our time is up. Uh, please accept my deep condolences on the loss of your dear beloved mother. Thank you. you are a true icon, and I know I can also speak for Alan. We are huge fans. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you so, so much. much for agreeing to honor us. What a great By, show. What an honor for me. Oh, well, it's, it's to us. It was just it was just an incredible honor that you agreed uh, to be our guest today on the definitive wrap. Thank you to our listening audience for tuning in and our appreciation to VinNews.com for the privilege of being their official podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the definitive wrap with your host, Bela Sebro. And Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.